And uh, we are in the book of 1 John. We happen to be in chapter 2. And John gives a series of tests all the way through, from chapter 1 through chapter 5. Three tests that he will constantly use. And uh, the ones who've been here the past few weeks, I'm sure you remember every one of those, right? All those tests. Uh, He wants to convince the readers that they can be assured in salvation. Uh, when you think First uh, John chapter 5, for instance, where he mentions that I write these things unto you that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. That is uh, verse 13. That is one of the theme verses. He's wanting them to realize, hey, listen, I don't want to scare you out of salvation. Uh, but it's a good test if one does not meet those, uh, those tests to see if you really are in the faith. There's a doctrinal test that deals with the person of Christ, the deity of Christ. If somebody says they're a Christian and they don't believe in the incarnation or they don't believe that Jesus is really God, He's just a God, then we can say immediately that because of that test, they fail that they are not Christians. Absolutely. If, what do they say about Christ? That's a good test. There's another test, and it's a moral test. And it's how they live their lives. They say one thing. They say they believe all the doctrines uh, in Christianity, but then their lives never line up with what is commanded in Scripture. And that's a good test to have. And then the third one is the social test. How do you love God and how do you love neighbors? Your neighbor is uh, very key in 1 John. Because if you say that uh, you love somebody, but you don't treat them with the kind of godly kind of love, it's, uh, it's worth questioning. And so John does that over and over through uh, this particular epistle. There are different stages of growth now. Now that we, we have seen that he's setting this up, you Christians can be assured in your salvation. But I want you to know... You might look at a fellow believer and they seem to be leaps and bounds over your own walk. And then you start looking at yourself and saying, I wonder if I'm even a Christian. I don't know those things. I don't do all the things that they do, so therefore I wonder if I'm even a believer. I don't even know anymore. Right? And so he wants them to realize that there are different levels of maturity. If you're a Christian, you're in the same faith. We're all in the same walk and everything, but there's different levels where we're at on our journey. Um, So uh, that's one reason why John is writing, because uh, at least this text that we're in today, is that they might be doubting their salvation. And he wants them to rest assured. He wants them to be secure in Christ. That's the whole key in Christ. Now, there are different levels of maturity, so that's going to help them maybe understand in their own walk. Do they confess Jesus Christ? Do they confess their sins? Right? Um, Are they obedient to Christ or desire to be obedient? We're not going to be perfect. By the way, the idea is not perfection here in this walk, in this life we have, but the idea is direction. Are we headed the right direction? Uh, And then another thing, do, do we love others, right? So anyway, God gives uh, life and then He expects life to grow. All you have to do is look at the plants in the spring and uh, you see life and then the, the plants grow and even flower and bloom, uh, fruit and such. And that is an order of nature. Same thing in the physical realm. We have little baby bodies at first and then they grow and then finally we become adults, right? And we, we get our right stature that we're supposed to be. And so that's physical. So we look at that and we say, yeah, that's a pretty good principle. But then there's a third principle, and that's spiritual growth. Uh, We must grow in Christ. We want to be mature. We want to come from babyhood in Christ to being a mature father in the faith. And that's what uh, John is stressing here. To be a Christian, we have a goal. And our goal is to be what? Christ-like. That's what we're shooting for. Like in... uh, I think of uh, Romans, for instance, in Romans 8, that we would be like Christ. And um, that is the, the whole ball of wax we're headed for. We're shooting for that. And it's a lifelong process. We're not going to get there immediately. Oh, I've been a Christian four months now, and uh, man, I'm not there yet. What's the deal? You know, that guy over there, you know, I, I want to be exactly like him. Well, we'll fine, follow those steps that he's showing through the Word of God. 
but it's going to take time. We all have our own journey, don't we? We're on the same right road, but we're along that uh, journey in, in different areas. Uh, becoming like Christ. That's the goal. That's the objective. That is spiritual maturity. Uh, we want to be like Him. Now, there are a few things that we need to know about before we go into Scripture here. I'm setting up a long introduction. We'll get into the Scripture. A few things that we need to know about spiritual growth that it is not. Sometimes I think certain people can have ideas of what spiritual growth is and uh, they'll say, well, you know, God has... Uh, seems like a stronger love for those kind of people over there and that person. And it seems like God doesn't love me as much. And so therefore, it's because of their spiritual growth He loves them more. Oh my. He loves every Christian in the same way as every other Christian. There are no levels there. God's love is complete for everyone. Uh, another one is, well, spiritual growth must be to do with time. One could be a Christian for a long time and not be a father in the faith. Matter of fact, not even be a young adult in the faith. You've seen some Christians who've been Christians for maybe 40 years and they've not grown much. They're very shallow in their knowledge of God and for maybe even a lot of the things of God. So it's not always dealing with time. It's not just knowledge. Knowing things. One can know a whole lot. Man, I mean, they can know doctrine, have been to seminary and can even preach it and teach it. But if they don't know God in a very intimate way, somebody who is a baby Christian might have a better walk with the Lord than that one who has all this great head knowledge. So it doesn't always mean that. How about activity or service? One who's involved in a lot of things. Does that always mean that, wow, they are really spiritual giants? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It can be. Uh, growth doesn't really have anything to do with success. Somebody can see a church and see, oh my, mega church, 35,000. That's got to be the greatest church in the United States. Does that, and they have a lot of money. Does that mean that they might have really spiritual growth in their lives? Not necessarily. What it does mean is that it's a process of taking in the truth of God and growing on the basis of believing and responding to that truth that God has given us. To put it simply, you can grow spiritually, and but you must grow in your understanding of who He is. Not just knowledge in the head, but knowing God. Knowing His truth and knowing Him. Uh, how you know Him is through this. But that's, that's the framework. So the, the three stages of our growth is what we're going to look at today and then see how that connects with uh, a warning uh, about the world. Uh, this is, a, I think, a very helpful framework that John has given us uh, now as he kind of like stops and says, okay, you've been looking at these tests. I want to make sure that you know what's going on in your life. You're a young Christian. Here's why you're at where you're at. Don't expect to have it all at one time. Although you do, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have Christ, we have everything there. But Peter says to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go to the Scripture and let's turn to chapter 2, verse 12. Get those Bibles out and uh, let's read this first section. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Let's take a moment or two to pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is precious. Very much grace has been shed on our hearts as we open up the Scripture this morning, and we desire to know You. Uh, May Christ be the center of the tension as we look at spiritual growth because it is only in Him that we grow. And uh, help us through the Holy Spirit that we can have the power to understand and use this in our own lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
Right, it starts off, I write to you, little children. I'm, I'm writing here, little children. And right off the bat, I have to give you a, a Greek word here, and then there's another Greek word for children in this same text, in verse 13. And there are two different Greek words. In your English, it just says children. And so it can be kind of confusing. I hope this will help out a little bit. But in verse 12, the, the word is technia. And that's a general term for children. It doesn't necessarily mean a little baby child. This one means, like for instance, my mom is sitting out there, and I am her child. Uh, She had children, okay? How many children did you have? Well, her children could could be five, could be 20 years old, could be 50, right? I'll stop there. I like that. I like that number. And uh, but yet, you know, I'm not a little child, but yet I am a technia. I'm her child. So that's the kind of the general term that he uses there. And so when we break these words up, and I'm not trying to get too technical about this. I don't want to overdo this, but I think it kind of helps seeing that this is a general term and it's for anyone. We're all sons and daughters of our parents and it's not necessarily connected with age or maturity here. And I think that's really what he's saying here. Uh, it, this definitely could flow to the, to, to the little child and we can make, make that real easy because little children is only mentioned twice here. And the other ones are mentioned twice. Uh, the fathers and the young men. So we have young children, fathers, and young men, but then we have this word, uh, little children. Um, anyway, um, I write to you, little children, all of us. I think what he's saying here is I'm writing to you, all of you people here uh, who are receiving this epistle, who are receiving this letter, and I want you to know your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Isn't that good to know? I think that's one good thing about when we all come together and we realize uh, that, hey, we're saved by grace. Our sins are forgiven. We are in right standing before a great, holy, awesome God. We stand before Him being justified. And we can look back at our past or our week that we've had and say, yeah, but man, I've had a really sinful week. <laughs> I've had a bad week. And, you know, well, the thing is, it's what He has done. What is He saying? You have been forgiven. Whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're mature, whether you're a babe in Christ, what does He say here? Your sins are forgiven. You. That's something all Christians know. We all know that. We need to be reminded though. And that's what's so great about having a, you know, a, a, a prayer that starts our worship dealing with thank you for your grace. Thank you for forgiveness. I come here knowing that I can go to the throne room with other people. So this is something all Christians know. Uh, your sins are forgiven. And the, the baby Christians, if we wanted to use that word as baby Christians there, what's one thing they know? Well, they know my sins have been forgiven. You know? My sins are forgiven. They've been cast away forever. Uh, let's look at a few scriptures dealing with that. You can say, well, I've always heard that all my life. Well, where's the passage at? Well, uh, 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 well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption. That means we have been bought and we have been paid for. We've been taken out of the slave market. We've been redeemed through His blood. Here we go. The forgiveness of sins. Hamartia. We have been forgiven. His blood paid the price. You are now His. You are bought. You are redeemed. Who are these? They're the ones that, have, that were chosen before the foundation of the world in verse 4. The one in verse 5. That were predestined. That were adopted as sons. And it was all for the glory of His grace. And He made us accepted in the Beloved. And then He goes on to say, We have been forgiven. It's done. The deal is done. We don't have to worry about that. How many sins were forgiven? Was it all our past sins? But how about our future sins? Was that taken care of too? Well, if it wasn't, Christ has to go back to the cross and die for that, doesn't He? Continually. Therefore, we have a Roman Catholic belief in that you have a continual, perpetual sacrifice because it did not take care of the sins that we do and we practice. So it has to be done. You go to the priest, you confess that, you, uh, you now are forgiven until you sin next time. 
And then you need to be forgiven again. So you need to go back to the confessional. That's what Martin Luther just kept doing. He kept going back to the confessional. As soon as he walked out, closed the door, he walked the walkway, and he just thought of something that was not holy, and he went right back to the confessional. And the priest got tired of him and said, what are you doing? You just can't keep doing this. And they all said, you want to take a break. You don't want to do your work. You just want to sit in there and talk. (laughs) But that's not true. He felt the weight. He didn't see that his sins were already forgiven. Isn't that an important doctrine? How many sins were forgiven? Every one or none. So that's the only reason we can stand for Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. So somebody can say, well, where is it my sins are forgiven? Well, that's one verse, wouldn't it? Ephesians 4.32 And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Okay, here's the reason why we need to forgive others. Why? Even as God in Christ forgave you. Ah, You have to keep forgiving because God keeps forgiving. There is no better model than that, is there? Let's keep going. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 in the epistle that we're dealing with. Does John say this? Well, Paul said it. And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins. And in Him, in Christ, there is no sin. What He does is He takes away our sin. That's expiation. You know what happened at the cross? If you're a Christian, your sins were taken away, expiated, just like the goat in the Old Testament. One of the goats... That goat took off and that was representing taking the sin outside the camp. Expiation. And there was propitiation that happened too, which means God the Father is now pleased with the work that was done because the sin is taken away. That's why it's so important to know that He died for your sin. You're a Christian. He died for that. It's been taken away. He takes away the ones that he, he chose. The sin is done. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Paul uh, and John we have seen. And then we have Luke writing in the book of Acts and he records something here that would be something similar. To him, all the prophets, Old Testament, witness that through his name, through the name of Christ. That's in First John, His name. Whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. That is coming into reality. There's something that happened at the cross 2,000 years ago where we died with Him. Where we became alive with Him. But then there's a point in time when we like answer the call that He has. And when we do that, Our belief has been placed in Him and now the remission of sins is now done. In chapter 13 of Acts, verse 38, we look further and He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by Him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. We're forgiven, not by trusting in that law, but in Him. We go back to 1 John now, and he says, Your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. Oh, that's a key phrase there. We're forgiven. And here's where it all starts. Where does everything always start when we look at the things of God? It starts with God. We don't start with ourselves. We start with God. It was for His namesake or His glory. He forgave us, not because we were really cool people and He really kind of took a liking to us. I don't know about Him. That helped me. He's alright. You know, He's got some sins. but No, no it, He did it so that He would get the glory. His namesake. For the glory of the Lord. It's not because we are worthy of forgiveness. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because we merit it. But it's for His glory. And when He forgives us, the glory is shining. Uh, You've been forgiven because it pleased God to put on display the wonder and glory of His great grace and forgiveness. And every time you read that word grace and forgiveness, doesn't it make you look at that in a higher way than you have before? It pushes it up. You you see Him in His greatness. His namesake. Um, You know what that means? The the name of the Lord 
It means all that He is. When you say, blessed is the name of the Lord, when you say name, that shortens everything and it's, it's saying this. This is everything about who He is. His power, His authority, His justice, His mercy, His grace. Name all those, wrap them up into one great big ball and you have holiness, you have glory. You have glory here. That's what His uh, display is about. So John is saying, I'm not questioning whether you're Christians or not. He says, I know the ones who really are, you're the little children. I know you've all been forgiven. Now does that, does that kind of make sense? I know you don't feel worthy and I know some of you might be doubting your salvation because, remember the text back during the time of John, who were some of the people that were causing a lot of the, the, the rift? They were the pre-Gnostics. The ones who said that they were enlightened. They had the light and others really didn't. And they brought a pre-Gnosticism into Christianity. So they believed in Christ, but yet they didn't live it. They didn't confess sin. And they didn't uh, do a lot of things. But matter of fact, some of them even doubted if He was really God in the Incarnation. But that's the kind of mentality that John has to write to. And he says, I want you to know, you are Christians. You have been forgiven. Look in Psalm 25, verse 11. Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, O Yahweh, Jehovah, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. What's the psalm writer saying here? It's for your glory, Lord. When you forgive me, it's for your name. It's for your glory. It's about all that you are. When we ask in the name of the Lord, He says, you pray in the will of Him, right? You're, you, you, he says to pray in the name of the Lord. Ask what Jesus Christ would ask. Ask for His glory, not for your own. Psalm 109, 21. When we mention our own sins to the Lord uh, and we confess that, do you know the Lord has just been glorified? Have you ever thought about that? God is glorified when you confess the sins. Psalm 109.21 But you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for Your name's sake. You do it. Not so much that I would feel better and get this guilt removed. And it does do that. But what's the reason that He's admitting this? For His name's sake. Because Your mercy is good. Deliver me. Lord, I know about Your mercy. I know about Your forgiveness. Forgive me, and I know You do, because You get the glory. We're just confessing with Him. What does confess mean? Hama legeo. It means to agree with. To say the same thing. You're saying the same. God already knows it. We're just agreeing with Him when we confess. We need to do that. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 7. The great prophet, Jeremiah. Again, dealing with the name's sake. The Lord's sake. His glory. Chapter 14, verse 7. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us. Oh, they're pointing right at us. Do it for Your name's sake. Do it for Your glory. For our backsliding are many. We have sinned against You. But Lord, You do it. You forgive us because it will bring glory to You. You will be put on display. How about Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9? I don't want to wear this out, so I'll stop at this one. Are we getting the idea? Everything we do is for His name's sake. That's important. For my name's sake, this is the Lord saying, I will defer my anger, and for my praise I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. That means He's going to refine Israel. He is going to discipline them severely. But He says, because of my name's sake, because of my promises, because of my faithfulness, I'm going to stop my anger and my wrath and hold it back so that you're not cut off. He's glorified. So, that is the idea of namesake. Don't deny the reality of what the Lord has done in your life. He has forgiven you. A great measure of grace there, isn't there? So 
So we're not talking about absolute perfection, but we're talking about direction and progress in the Lord. Now, that is the general term, little children, that's all of us. Now let's get in to the different levels of maturity. Verse 13, I write to you fathers. Now you think he'd start with little, the little children here, but no, he goes all the way to the top, goes to the fathers, the elders, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Okay, I'm writing to you. Some of them might have been elders in the church, leaders. They're the ones who were the most mature. These are the ones that uh, could have been fathers as far as age is concerned. They could have had children and and such. It doesn't mean that. Somebody who could be a a pretty young Christian and yet be a father in the faith. Uh, The Lord has advanced them, but uh, usually it it does take time. It deals with maturity here, regardless of age or how long one has been a Christian. Let's look at Job 32, verse 9. And what are we dealing with? Dealing with elders and ones with wisdom and maturity. It says, Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Now he's giving the negative sense. Just because somebody is great, I mean, they have high political office or they have a great professional position and they're highly respected out in the secular world doesn't mean that they're always wise as far as spiritual understanding is concerned. Or somebody who's aged, just because they're aged doesn't mean that they really are fathers in the faith. Second uh, Peter three eighteen, I think that's the one that says, "Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." I think I'm right, right there. Well, what's the deal about them? They're fathers because they have known Him as from the beginning. Well, all Christians know God, but this kind of knowledge is an intimate knowledge. They really know God. They pursue Him. They just seek after Him. And they know Him through His Word. They know it through the experiences they've had in their lives with the Word of God and putting that together. And in Philippians 3.10, Paul is talking about all the trash that he used to have in his life as a legalist Jewish person. If anybody was right, it had to be him as far as being a Jew. And then he finally says, oh no, that's nothing. That, everything that I had was zero. It's zip. He says this, Here's what it's all about, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And then get this, not only the power of His resurrection, but the fellowship of His, what? Sufferings being conformed to His death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That I may know Him. That I may know the power of His resurrection. That I may know uh, His sufferings. All about Christ. Whatever it is, I want to know those. I want to know Him. I knew it from the beginning. Right from... It's knowing that this is the God who is behind the doctrine. This is the God who goes all the way back. He is the eternal God. So the fathers know the God who revealed this doctrine. The life is an experience of, of worship. Being lost... In wonder. A father in the faith is lost in, in the awe of God. A father in the faith is lost in praising God. So I write to you, fathers, because you have known this from the beginning. Well, what about the young men? Who are they? Well, we know that they overcome the wicked one. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Well, these guys are strong in recognizing doctrinal error. They're strong against sin. They have the Word of God. They read it. They study it. They understand who God is. And they're always ready to take on anything that goes against true doctrine. Um, they overcome the wicked one. They, they know the Word. And they use the Word. Uh, they're excited about it. They may not have the experiential knowledge that the fathers have. Maybe they haven't walked with God that long. But they will take on the error. Look in Ephesians 6.17. You know, spiritual warfare? Well, uh, one of the weapons that we have right at the end of that list of spiritual warfare is the sword. 17 says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
And that's what they do. They believed the Word. They lived it out. They faced false doctrine. They went head-to-head with it. They recognized sin, recognized error. You look back at the early church, the early church days, and, you know, they had to fight this stuff, error coming in immediately. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that some amongst you will be teaching you false doctrine. Watch out for them. So be strong in that. And, and at Ephesus, believe me, they were. The only problem is they're warned by John later on by 90 AD and he's saying, you left your first love. Boy, they had doctrine. They had Paul teaching them. They had John teaching them. They had Timothy uh, teaching them. And Apollos. Did they know God? And then Polycarp, early church father, after John, preached there. Did they know doctrine? You bet. Boy, did they know it. They could take it on. The thing is, they left their first love. Anyway, to overcome the devil, you must have the Word of God as part of your armor and using that. So they had victory. They had morally, they, they were triumphant all the way morally. They were overcoming. And I, I think we could say that um, to us. We would ask, am I overcoming uh, all the things that the enemy throws at me? Am I overcoming the devil? Am I, am I able to recognize something that comes through that is absolutely false? Can I chop that away? Well, they're strong because of that word, aren't they? Let's stay on that just for a moment. Look in Proverbs twenty twenty nine. This is what makes us strong. The Word of God. The Word of God preached. The Word of God read. The Word of God studied. Listen to it. Constantly having it around us. Verse 29 of Proverbs 20. The glory of young men is their strength. When you, when you look at a young man, you know, they like to you know, do the muscles and the, the ripples and everything, right? The ribs and whatever. I don't know. But young men, physical, physical strength. You look at them and go, wow, the guy, you know. The splendor of old men is the, <laughs> the gray head. <laughs> I knew there'd be a remark coming out of that one. We got a lot of hair coming here. So. The old men would be the, the elderly. Uh, so he's saying physically that's what it is. Uh, they're, they're strong. They have strength, right? The young men do. Look in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119 is every verse about the Word of God. Look in verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? How can a young man, a strong young man, cleanse his way? How can he be clean? What? By taking heed according to your word. You want to be strong as a Christian? Take heed to the word. Take heed. Now look at verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Ah, great memory verse, isn't it? It's this word that's in us that can keep us from sinning. Wow. So there's a mark of a difference between a young man in the faith and a, and a, and a child someone who's still an infant or a babe in Christ, you know you're a spiritual young person whenever the cults don't attract you, whenever false doctrine comes along and you're not allured by it, when you're not easily deceived, you want to fight it. It's wonderful to see somebody arrive at that spiritual development when the Jehovah's Witness is knocking at the door. You can say, oh yeah, what, uh, what do you want? And uh, then you can say, hang on for a second. And you can start talking about Jesus Christ because that's really where you, you head at. You don't let them go off into Michael the Archangel and all that other stuff and soul sleep and what have you. Those things can be important doctrines. But the, what do they say about Christ? And so you can sit there and now start talking about that. The Mormons come to you. I use those two explicitly because when we were young, I mean very young, babes in the faith back in the late, late 70s, early 80s, uh, we had those people coming to our door, and I even had them come in and sit down at the kitchen table, and they'd show up, they'd open up their nice colored picture books, the great big books, all the colored pictures in there, all oh, in that cool. That's kind of weird looking. <laughs> There's something eerie about those. But you know, after a couple or three times, it was like the Lord had me uh, look at certain scripture, and I went to a Christian bookstore here in town and, and picked up a book dealing with those kind of things, and I was reading it. And as soon as I got uh, to the house, uh, as Carolyn and I arrived, we go, look at this. And it, somebody was knocking at the door. He had red hair. I remember this day. And he was, he was hot. 
I mean, he was a hot-headed guy because we got in discussion. I'd seen a, a little fact at the store and I'd read it and kind of thought about it in my mind. And there he is right there and I tried it on him. Well, he had a lot more things that I didn't have an answer to, but I said, hey, listen, I know Jesus Christ is God. Okay? And, uh, you know, so he started arguing. He started getting mad, but he left. And, and then uh, told the Mormons to, hey, just leave. And then it was Herbert W. Armstrong with all of his stuff. And so I was taking that in off the TV. A lot of junk on TV. Back at that time, there weren't so many. Now there are. You have to cut through a lot of stuff. It confuses a lot of people. We have a lot of false doctrine that comes right into your home and you don't even know it. And we're saying, watch out. Take warning. Uh, be strong in the Word. If you are, Satan can't deceive the young men or the young people in the faith in, as far as the Word of God is concerned. He'll use other ways then. But if you know what you believe and why you believe it, if somebody says Jesus is not God, you're not going to buy it, are you? And you know that you can stand up against a cult and preach the gospel to them. Who knows? They might even listen. They might even start being challenged by the faith and say, Whoa, I never saw that before. Let me check that out. Never know. Okay, now we go to the next level. We said fathers. Let's go to, to uh, and, and young men. Right at the end of verse 13, the second half, 13b, I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I'm writing to you because you have known the Father. Well, it said that the fathers knew God. Well, this is not quite the intimate knowledge that the fathers would have, but they know God. Every Christian knows God because God knew them first. And Paul says that in other scripture. We know God because He knows us. God loves us first before we love Him, right? God chose us before we chose Him. Can we say that? If He loved us first, what did we do before He loved us? We were enmity, at enmity with God. We were enemies, Ephesians says. We hated God. We did not want those kind of things of God. We were enemies. He loved us. And then He poured out His love in Romans 5. He lavished that love on us. And now we can pour that out to other people. Anyway, these know God. They're young children. They're still under under like parental instruction. If you take this word literally, this word paideia in the Greek, it's a different word than that other word that we used in verse 12. This is the other children. And so this is why we're saying now He's getting into this grouping of these. Uh, um, They're babes in Christ. They have come to know God recently. They have awareness of Him. They've got a bit of growing to do. Uh, But they're really hot for the Lord. I mean, they really want to study and read. Uh, But Peter tells in um, 1 Peter to desire the pure milk of the Word of God. Now that's for everybody. We want the pure doctrine. The strongness here. Uh, but sometimes you see milk and it's the kind of milk that only a, a baby can only have. It can't get into the meat yet. It's, it's too far over their head. There's too much stuff here that they can't quite grasp yet. And uh, it's just like babies, newborn babes that desire the mother's milk. They really do go after it though. Um, you don't see a, a wee little baby down a T-bone steak, do you? But they, they are hungry for that word. They're simply not ready. Uh, you know how they're most affected? They're most affected by their emotions. Their feelings. Rather than the information that is in here, they want this and they want to know what it's all about. But we as babies uh, who have not grown in the Lord, we uh, are controlled by emotions. And so that's why when you see new Christians, man, they are hot for the Lord and it's great. They're excited. They're on fire. You've seen them. You probably want them yourself. And, and it's not that you ever want to lose the fire. I've, I've heard somebody say that before. Oh, yeah, but you'll lose that excitement. No, no, no. You should gain more excitement. There is never a reason to lose excitement for the Lord. It's going to get more and more and more. So, you know, don't ever let anybody tell you, oh, well, you know, you'll finally get kind of mature and, and be quiet about things. No. And we want to be excited. But they, they know their dad. Can we say that one? 
That's what they know. They, because you have known the Father. That's one thing a baby Christian knows. They know they're forgiven, and they also know that they can say, Dad, Dad. Um, un- he has con- unconditional love. They know that, hey, He created this earth. Um, they know that they're secure in Him. They, they know that they have safety in Him. They can go right to Him. He's my Father. A uh, uh, verse that I immediately think of is Abba. Right? He is my dada, my father. The most intimate word used for father, just in case uh, we need to be reminded in Romans chapter 8, uh, after he's told us that we are adopted, and we've been adopted into the family of God. Romans 8 says, "Yeah, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba! Daddy, Father. And so the Spirit in us bears witness with our spirit that we are children or little children of God. Spiritual babies. God is my Father. Christ is my Savior. Christ died on the cross for my sins. I know that God cares for me. I know that God meets my needs. I know He's provided a home for me. And so they have affection for God. There's a delight in that kind of spiritual life. Look in Ephesians 4, 13 and 14. Here's the thing. A baby, sometimes like a, a real baby crawls on the floor. And, are, and if we had them here today, I could use them as a living illustration. The, the, the little boys that we're missing today, right? And, and one of them, I won't mention his name, but one of them actually will eat anything. You guys have experienced that, right? You, you see, you know, anything that's on the floor, he goes for it. He's going to eat that. Well, Ephesians 4, 13 and 14, what does it say? That we should no longer be children, little children, right? Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Here's what happens to baby Christians. They just pick up anything and stick it in their mouth. And they've got this doctrine and that doctrine and every, every, every doctrine that's flying around. And you're scrambling around. Get that out of his mouth quick. Look what's going to happen. And that's where their sensibilities and their sensitivities are so tender. And they, they begin to discover the world uh, that's inside their mouths. Uh, the, the physical babies do. Uh, so we have to protect them. Well, spiritually here, baby Christians lack discernment. They live in danger, being led seriously astray sometimes. Cults can come along and prey on spiritual babes, and they do. And uh, you look at these massive crowds that are out there that are wanting to take people who uh, need the pure Word of God, and they're drawn by false teachers. And you just know it's a combination of the spiritually immature and, and even the unconverted that are in those crowds. Now, it's okay to be at this stage because this is what uh, John points out here. We were all babies. We're all babies at, at one time. But we're not to stay there. We can't stay as little bitty babies. It would be like a 19-year-old crawling around on the floor, sticking things in his mouth and saying, Dada. And wow, we would go, there is a major problem with that. Whoa. Well, that's, that's the way it is when somebody who's been around as a Christian a long time and they're still at that stage. Now, we look back at First John here and we see that he comes back to verse 14. I've written to you fathers. He mentions it again because you have known him who is from the beginning. So we've seen that, right? We attest to that. I have written to you young men. He comes back and tells them again. Because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you. We looked at that. And you have overcome the wicked one. We looked at that. So there are those spiritual stages. Say, now I kind of grasp why as I look at others that why they are maybe on a different spiritual level than maybe I am. Or we look at people and say, well, this is where they're at in their journey. Here's what's going on. We identify with that and say, hey, come on, follow me. You know, Take a look at this. We watch and protect others all the time. Now, 15 through 17 now, you can say, well, how does this go along with the spiritual states here? Well, it's a warning. 
And there are dangers in the fellowship of God. In the fellowship of God, you have babies, baby Christians. You have the young men, the young women. And then you have the elders or the, the fathers of the faith. And it doesn't matter whether you're a father in the faith. It doesn't matter whether you're a young man strong. It doesn't matter whether you're a little baby. Watch out. Because you are going to have a battle. There are dangers awaiting you. What if? Well, we can have a temptation to start loving the world. It says in verse 15, let's read those. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, number one, the lust of the eyes, number two, and the pride of life, number three, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Okay. These dangers. Hate the world. Don't love it, but hate it. He said, wait a minute, world. We're going to have to define this world, aren't we? Because it can be taken different ways. In this epistle of John, we see constantly love is a major theme, isn't it? And all of a sudden he says, don't love it. Matter of fact, it's almost like saying, hate it. Okay? In this section, we're seeing a negative aspect of love. Are we ever told to not love something? Well, we're to love everything, right? Well, not here. A Christian cannot love God and the devil, right? We cannot do that. A Christian can't love righteousness and love sin at the same time. Can he do that? You can't serve two masters, Jesus said. Right? And mammon, you can't love God and love mammon. The love of that. If you love the Lord, you hate what? Sin or evil. Now, we've got to define this word world because this could be bothersome. Do not love the world. The word is cosmos. And you've probably heard that word many times. You've heard of cosmetics? It's an order, arrangement. Women, you know, get everything and they arrange their face. I don't know if you say that. You guys say, hey, I just arranged my face today. But you use cosmetics to put yourself in order, arrangement. Uh, it's a system. Okay? So in this case, it's not disorder, but it's, it's um, cosmos and not chaos. We've heard of chaos. Chaos is out of order. Right? So, do not love this orderly system. But there are contextual meanings. In John 3.16, God so loved the cosmos. God so loved the world, right? Well, there's God loving the world. And here he says in 1 John, love not the world. Now, what in the world is going on here with the word world? What in the world? What do we do with this? Okay. God so loved the world. This sounds so contradictory. Dennis, what's going on? Well, cosmos can mean the physical makeup, the the soil of the earth, the physical aspects of the earth, the whole of creation. Now, are we supposed to hate that? No. We say, wow, this is great. Look, it reminds me of God's creation. This is incredible. Look what God did. Does anybody ever see the movie um, Oceans? Not Oceans 12 or Oceans 13, but Oceans. Came out a couple years ago, and it was all the different fish that are in the sea, the small and the big, and you see things you've never seen before, and you go, did they make this up? <laughs> Can you imagine going into the bottom of the ocean, way, way down there, that nobody has ever seen, all of a sudden seeing things that God had created thousands of years ago, and He put those on display for Himself, for His glory, the splendor and, wow, majesty, you know. The, the light that comes on inside those fish. I mean, literal light. <laughs> Unbelievable. But that's the things of the world that we're not to, to hate. Those are good things, right? Or it can mean different peoples of the world. Every tribe and tongue. God so loved the world. The people in it, in the sense uh, of that. Every tribe, nation, and tongue. Okay. But in the third sense, it means the world's sense system that is to satisfy man. Man has a system and it's really apart from God. It's organized, but it has wrong principles. It's a cosmos. It has. I want you to catch these three different terms or phrases. It has base desires. 
This world system does. Number two, it has false values. And number three, it's egoism or boasting. And those are the three terms we'll come up with in verse 16. They're outlined because they're right there. It's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and those with pride of life. Uh, we're going to be turning them uh, into something else that helps explain it too. But it's the world of wickedness. It's the world of wretchedness. The world of corruption. The system of evil that is led by Satan. The whole world, First John chapter 5, right at the end of it says, lies in the lap of the evil one. Are you getting it? Satan is running this world. What's going on in the world? What in the world? What's going on out there? Chaos inside of some kind of order. Politically, economically, socially. You can look at it spiritually. It's a mess out there. Isn't it a mess? Everybody talks about it all the time. It's terrible. And it seems like it's getting worse. Well, that sounds scriptural. It says uh, in these last days uh, it will continue to wax worse and worse. Don't expect the world to get better. Don't expect that. Be nice, but the thing is, no, no, it really wouldn't because that would delay the Lord's coming. First John chapter 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Well, what about that? And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming, is now already in the world. There's the word world again. Spirit of Antichrist. Anything that is against God and His truth that is right here, it's the Spirit of Antichrist. It's already here. John 12, verse 31. John wrote in the Gospel of John, 12, 31, what Jesus had said. Here's what Jesus said about it. Now, is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What he's saying is that Jesus is going to overcome Satan. And Jesus is the ruler. The thing is, we still fight the enemy now. Jesus will come back to this world to claim what he has. Did you know that there was a guy by the name of Demas? Anybody ever heard of the guy Demas? Sounds like a bad name, doesn't it? Well, he gets a bad name because verse 10, Paul is listing some people. There have been some people who forsook him. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For Demas, he says, hey, be diligent, Timothy, come to me quickly and you know, bring my parchments and bring the scripture and it's his last days. He wants to study. But he said, Come quickly. Because I've had a lot of them that have left. They're gone. They just left me. For Demas has forsaken me. What did he do? He loved this present world. And he has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia. Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. But anyway, he says, Demas forsook him. He left him for the things of this world. That word means to completely forsake, to abandon. Because the things of the world look better to him. He didn't like the idea of prison. And all the things that come with Christianity. It's incompatible for Christians to love God and love the world. So the first reason that we should hate the world is for what it is. It is a system of evil and wickedness. All the fortresses that are found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3-5, through 5, it talks about the fortresses, all the things that we build up in our own philosophies, in our minds, the sin that is built up against the truth. And those things have to be shot down one by one, one stone at a time, getting rid of the sin and all the wretched thoughts that we've had and false belief. 
idolatry that we have that will be shot down. Those fortresses, boom, boom, boom. We overcome the world by our faith, 1 John 5.5 5 says. It's believing God. That's how you overcome that. So, hate the world. Why? Because of what it is. Does that make sense? Don't love the world because now you know what it is. You know where it's really at. It's not for God. Don't let it fool you. Well, secondly, don't love the world because of what it does. What does it do? Verse 16. 1 John 2.16. Here's what it does. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. It's not of the Father, but it's of the world. Verse 16 sums up all the worldliness that there is. If you want a verse here to explain what's going on in our daily battles, in our walk, in our journey, it's found right here. Lest the flesh, lest the eyes pipe alive. He's always been here from the very first sin to right now. What All throughout um, human history, we go from Adam all the way up to now, eternity we look to because this battle is hard. The enemy comes in us at three different ways. And you know those doubt and deception and all that deceit that he does. The world incites us to sin. That's really what the world wants to do. Of course, overall commanded by the enemy, Satan himself. Why do the people of the world do what they do? Don't be surprised when they do these political things and do all the crazy things that's totally immoral. You say, I can't believe they do those things. Well, you should believe they do that because that's what they are. That's what we were. So what does it do? What does the world do? Well, it causes base desires or the lust of the flesh. It gratifies the bodily, sensual pleasures, the appetites, the desires of the evil nature that goes to the depravity of one. The world tempts us to fulfill what are normal appetites. God gives us desires. Those desires are good. He gives us a desire to drink Drink some water. Drink whatever. He gives us the desires or appetites to eat food. That's a good thing. He gives us desires to work. That can be a good thing. A desire for um, companionship in our life. To love somebody. We can go on and on and on. Those desires are good things. Uh, The problem with the world is, is that it takes the normal appetites that God gave us, distorts those, and puts them into abnormal ways. Sex was intended for one thing that is in marriage between a man and a woman. You have to even qualify that today, don't you? I hear now that it's politically incorrect to say on the radio that the only kind of marriage is between a man and a woman. And if you said that on a secular side, you would be cut down immediately and they go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Um... You, you are politically incorrect. There are men and men and women and women also. Um, that is abnormal, though, isn't it? God gave us normal appetites that, we, uh, that are good. The world can take hunger, turn it into gluttony. Oh, that can get a lot of us. It just got me. Sorry about that. It uh, can take thirst and turn it into drunkenness. It can take sleep. That's a good thing. All these are good things. God gave them to us. Get to sleep, but turn it into sloth and laziness. Take sex and turn it into immorality. So, it causes the base desires to lead us. The second one is the lust of the eyes. This is false values. Lust of the eyes. Children of the world are driven by what they see. You see something, you want it. The evil desires is what they see. Have you ever heard of this? Ooh, feast your eyes upon that. (laughs) That could be something really bad. Feast your eyes, ungodly and sinful things. The media constantly is putting things before our eyes that really look good. Hey, you drive this car, you're going to have success. You, uh, You drink this beer, you drink this alcohol, And you know what? You're going to have the most beautiful women surrounding you all the time. 
Now that's what you get. That's, that's what you get in, in what they're sh- uh, showing in their visuals. What we see is only skin deep and it's superficial. And so we're attracted by the good, lovely looking things. Having possessions. Having more and more possessions. And more and more is fueled by the lust of the eyes. We see that, we want it. It can be summed up as coveting. And you remember that God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at what's on the outside, right? He goes for the inward. And we have scriptures, but because of lack of time, I'm going to skip those. Proverbs 5.18, 2 Samuel 11, Joshua 7. All those are right there. So I'm going to put those up later. We've got to keep moving on. There's another one. I should have done this for next week. Because I should be stopping right now. But you know what? I'm going to take another minute or two. <laughs> so much for the introduction. Now let's get into the scripture for today. Now, <laughs> Prideful boasting. A child of the world. Did you know a child of the world, and this was all of us, this is what we were. We were from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what we were all about. Did you know that prideful boasting is what we were all about? Do you know who the most important person in the world is? Me. Me, me, me. Before we come to Christ. And even as Christians, we tend to think that way. Uh, shame on us, but that's, that's fighting the battle. Everything is about me. Did you know the whole world revolves around me? Yeah, yeah. I'm at the center of attention. This is self-display, self-glory, self-pride. It's unholy ambition. And it shows all the things that I am. That's all it is. Did you know these three terms here, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? This is all the world has. This is all it does. It brings those three up to us every time. All your sin can be found right in here, in one of these three. I kid you not. It's a web of those three areas of temptation. Hate the world because of what it is, what it does, where it's going. Well, where's it going? Well, it says the world is passing away in verse 17. It's heading to destruction. The reason that we should hate the world is because of where it's going. It's transient. It's disintegrating. It's in the process of disillusion, not evolution. Evolution says everything's getting better. Oh, if they would only recognize what that term means. Things are winding down. They're getting worse. You've got a business that's falling? People don't invest in it. To live for the things in this transient world is investing in something that, that's going to burn up. It's like the Titanic and rearranging the chairs in it before it's going down, as it's going down. <laughs> Why? What's the use? What's the point? And I've got other scripture to go to. You've got them right there. Might want to look them up later. By the way, later, you guys are still reading First John? It's getting near the end of uh, that time for the reading of the month, right? <laughs> Keep reading it. I'll tell you, it will uh, bring you a blessing. The world we're talking about is a system of man. It's going to go to the destruction of Satan. It's going to cast him into the lake of fire. The destruction of the demons. Uh, all of those who follow the world system, who love that, they're anti-Christ, they're anti-God, they'll even tell you that. The religion from all of human history, going all the way back. All the, 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 the death, the spiral death, everything. All of the framework of the world is catapulting at an amazing, tremendous, rapid rate right into eternal hell. That is where it's going. Why would you want to invest your life into the world? Wow. Are you surprised things are as bad as they are? Uh, you, you probably said, I have never seen so many things as bad in this life, in this world, that I have, I have seen now. I've heard that from a lot of you. Well, that's right. They've never been this bad in anybody's life because it's getting worse and worse. And we assume that it's going to be worse in the next generation. And if there's another generation after that, I assume it's going to get worse and worse. The system. Did you know what? Sin is destroying the system from within. It's like a cancer. You know what a cancer does? It eats itself up until all is dead. 
And that's what's happening. It's getting worse. It's eating itself. Is that a threat to us as Christians? And you're saying, man, Dennis, uh, get a little heavy here. No. No, this is great. How can you say that? Well, this is what God says it's going to do. We have great hope. We have the hope to offer to the world. Anyone, look at the, the, the last phrase. This is why it's great hope. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You will hoopomeno, you will stick around, you will live forever, eternally. If you're a Christian, your eternal life has already started. You are in life. You have life. You are you have God's life. And it will not be eating up. Uh, it's no cancer there. You are growing. Remember what the first few verses of this was about? Is it about developing in Christ? As you develop, don't let the world keep you from developing and stumbling. If you do the will of God, if you believe in Him, you trust in Him, Christians live forever. Um, there's a great deal about confusion about worldliness. And uh, you know what? Sometimes the church, when it's compared to the sitting alongside the looks of the world, it kind of looks like a pale color, black and white photograph to the color photograph of the world. Look at what they have to offer. Look at the music. Look at the arts. Look at all that. Actually, you really start looking at it and you go, it's really pretty bad. You see what they have to offer in the technological world. And there can be Christians in that technological world. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we, we can improve things. That, that can be good. We can have those good things and use them. But when the world is a multimedia presentation, offering things, and that's why people don't want to be Christians unless God opens their heart, because it looks much better. Remember the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes? It looks so much better. You go into the body of Christ, you walk into a church like this, I mean, it's, it's got some walls in it. It's got a screen up here. It, what's the beauty about this? There's not much here really to really adore. And then you have to look at a guy like me. He's losing his hair and losing everything, you know. <laughs> and you've been, you've been very patient because we've lost our time. But we look old sometimes. We look dated. The world can look a lot fresher, feel better. The bottom line is this. Whatever the world's perception of us is, whatever modernity has to perceive of us, the world cannot give what Jesus Christ gives. This is the heart of the message, folks. Now we wrap it up by looking at Christ. That's how we grow. We grow in Christ. The world cannot give us Jesus Christ. Isn't that unbelievable? We can. We can offer Christ to the world. Jesus never passes away. What's the world doing? It's disintegrating. It's going away. The amazing thing that's thrilled my heart about the end of verse 17 is that God's ways is this. He that does the will of God abides forever. And the one who does the will of God is the one who overcomes. What overcomes? It's the ones who have faith. If you are a Christian, you are abiding forever. You obey. You love God. You love His neighbor. You love the neighbor. Let's pray. Father, You are certainly the awesome, holy God. You've given us in Your Word something totally opposite of what the world says about itself. And we've seen now that we are desiring to grow, to be more like Christ. And that's what it is. And as we are, then when the temptations come, we will draw upon Your Word and Your Holy Spirit to keep us from the sin that the world is throwing at our face all day long. And we pray but with Your armor, with Christ in us, that we can defeat the enemy because we have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.